They asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous the sinners. Why don't we pray? Let's pray and ask that God would help us this afternoon. Father, thank you that your spirit shines light upon this word. And we pray that you do that. We pray you'd break up our stony hearts and where our hearts are hard. We pray that you'd show us Christ, that you'd reveal your glory, that you'd pour your spirit out right now as we have your word open in front of us, that we might hear you speak and that we might be changed by it for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's all going fairly well for Jesus uh, if you judge success on numbers. I mean, he's got a good following. In fact, we're told it twice. Have a look at verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard he'd come home. Such large numbers, there was no room left. (laughs) Fantastic. Jesus is a success. There's momentum, there's a wave that he's riding. Jump down to verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. There is no doubt that Jesus is pulling in a big crowd. And that means that in our world, he is a major success. The momentum is with him. Any politician would be very excited at this point. The SNP, bless their hearts, have been having their uh, thingy up in Scotland, their conference. And uh, Nicola Sturgeon, I, I didn't listen to all her, I confess, I didn't listen to all her speech. But I dropped in to snippets here and there just to see what was happening. And uh, she very proudly announced that the SNP now has 112,000 members. See, the numbers matter. If you're a politician, if you're building a crowd, numbers really matter. It's important. Except that Jesus isn't interested in building a crowd. He's come to establish a kingdom. And that is a completely different thing. Just think about those two things for a second. If you want to build a crowd, popularity is your key weapon. That's what it's all about. You've got to give the people what they want. Because as soon as you start to annoy people, they're going to disappear. And it's like, no, 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 come back, I need my crowd. If if crowd building is what it's all about, you've got to be popular. You've got to put on a good show. The opinion polls matter. You measure your success on how long the applause lasts at the end of the speech. No one's ever applauded me when I finished the sermon, never mind. And don't today, just because it will be patronising and I'll feel like you're taking the mickey. You need plenty of excitement, you need plenty of razzmatazz, you need plenty of energy and you build a crowd. You flatter people, you tell them how great they are, you tell them how important they are, you tell them how you're going to change their life and how we're the party that can change your life and we're the best for you and we've got the best policies and we'll make your life better. You see, that's how you build a crowd. But to build a kingdom is very different. You see, popularity is how you build a crowd. Authority is how you build a kingdom. You see the difference? Jesus has come to establish a new authority. Now actually, here's the deal, right? If you try and establish a new authority, you end up causing conflict confrontation and provocation. 
You end up with people being upset with you. It challenges. It makes enemies. If you want to establish a kingdom, then conflict is unavoidable. If you want to build a crowd, just avoid conflict. Just be nice. If you want to establish a kingdom, conflict is unavoidable. And the kingdom of God is like that. The religious system of Jesus' day was seriously broken. It was a mess. It was not helping people. The world that Jesus came into, the culture of his day, kept people out and enslaved. And Jesus came to challenge it. It's like if you go to Harrods, <laughs> like we all do you know, most of the time. They've got a dress code at Harrods. Right? You know the dress code at Harrods? I'll give you a hint. This is for free, right? There's a little bit of extra information that just for free. The dress code does not permit any person to enter the store, this is from their website, dressed in the following manner, wearing high-cut Bermuda or beach shorts, swimwear, athletic singlets, I wouldn't even know what that was, cycling shorts, flip-flops or thong sandals, thong sandals, probably the other type as well, with a bear, <laughs> sorry, unhelpful. Okay, move on, move on, come on, keep going. It's where your mind goes wrong. Uh, you can't enter with a bare midriff, bare feet, or wearing dirty or unkempt clothing. Right, do you see, you see how it's, we've got this list of, we've got this standard, you meet our standard or you get out. That was essentially the religious system of, that Jesus was coming into. It was a standard. There was a, there was a standard you had to meet in order to be allowed in. And if you didn't measure up to that moral standard, you're rejected. Bottom of the heap, unimportant. You can't come into our shop. But Jesus comes to establish a kingdom and it is going to absolutely confront that. So if you've got an issue with Harrod's dress code, you say, this is, I, I have a problem with this. You could... You got, when you go to Harrods, you've got a choice, haven't you? You either conform and keep everyone happy and just don't wear flip-flops, or you say, no, actually, I'm going to wear flip-flops. Conflict is unavoidable. Now, that's a slightly trivial, silly example. But for Jesus coming, there's nothing trivial about this at all. Well, what we're going to watch Jesus do this afternoon is twice he is going to deliberately provoke a reaction in order to show what his kingdom's like. He's going to deliberately choose to do things which confront and bat up against the system of the day. He sends two shockwaves through that society that leave people reeling. And we've got to understand that our culture hasn't changed that much. Isn't it true that there are certain standards that we say, oh, you've got to meet these, otherwise you're really not that important? You're nothing. If you don't have this, or if you don't look like this, or if you don't get these exam results, or if you don't behave in this way, or if you don't conform to what we want you to be, then you're out. It'd be easy to think that Jesus is just another bloke with another list of dress code that you have to wear. Although he probably, flip-flops was probably all right. <laughs> Sandals probably was an okay thing. He'd have had other issues. Easy to write Jesus off like that. But Jesus comes with dynamite to blow apart human systems. And so what happens in each of these stories, 
is you see, you see this, hang on. You see a confrontation. Jesus deliberately confronts. There's an accusation and then there's a demonstration. This is what happens in both of these stories. Jesus confronts the system. The system reacts and accuses Jesus of something. And Jesus demonstrates why his kingdom is so much better than the system that he's come to confront. So first up, he he says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Now don't don't be fooled into thinking that's just a nice thing Jesus said. That is an offensive confrontation with the religious system of the day. The religious leaders did not miss what he was doing. They could see exactly what he was doing. And then he goes out and he calls a notorious sinner, this man Levi. He picks the most offensive man he can find and calls him to follow him. Why? Because he wants to confront the system of the day. He wants to show how his kingdom is so different to anything this world has ever seen before. That's what Jesus is doing. And he's demonstrating how his kingdom is better than any other kingdom. I have to warn you, Jesus is not trying to win an election. He's trying to establish a kingdom. He's not trying to keep you happy. He's not trying to win your approval. He's not interested in your approval. He's interested in your worship. Now, we get it wrong when we think that Jesus is somehow kind of like, well, come on, Jesus, what have you got for me? No, Jesus has come to set up a kingdom, and it is wonderful, and it is glory. So let's get, let's get into these um, stories. But let's be willing for Jesus to shake us up a little bit. Because we've got our systems, right? We've got our natural thinking that says, oh, if I'm good, then that's all right. We need Jesus to shake us up. We need Jesus to show us what's really going on. So let's get into these stories. Uh, let's, the first big confrontation, here's the first big thing we learn about Jesus' kingdom, is that Jesus forgives sin, Right? You don't remember anything else from this afternoon, which is a fairly high chance. Remember this. Jesus forgives sin. That's his first big confrontation with the system of the world. Let's, let's get into the story, right? So Jesus come. He's got this big crowd of people. No room. Not even outside the door. And he's preaching the word to him. And then you get this great, you get this great story. You've got to try and picture this. You've got to try and get into this, right? There's this man who's paralyzed. And he's got four friends. Can you imagine them sitting around having a conversation? Hey, listen, this man Jesus is doing some amazing stuff. What do you reckon? Should we try to get to him? Oh, I don't know why. I don't know. Would he be interested in me? Come on, it's worth a try, isn't it? So they, you know, four friends pick him up. Off we go. Come, let's go see Jesus. And they get their eyes busy. You know, Jesus is very busy. There's too many people. Imagine, you know, surely the thought goes through their head. Ah, oh, this isn't worth it. And that's not troubling. Let's not bother. But you see, there's something that's so drawn to Jesus that they say, actually, no, we're going to get to him. Don't care what it takes. We're going to get to him. So they climb up on the roof of the house. And as Jesus, you've got to picture the scene, right? As Jesus is teaching, suddenly bits of dirt start falling from the roof, yeah? And I was going, what is that? What's happening? It, it, presumably, initially, Jesus continues to preach. You know, he just tries to ignore it like most preachers when something like a mobile phone goes off on. Oh, going to ignore it. Pretend it's not happening. So Jesus is preaching. But eventually you can't ignore it. Can you? you can't ignore the fact that the roof is disappearing. And you get these four faces kind of, ooh, hello. <laughs> and then the man starts to be lowered down. That's a risky maneuver. I think I'd be nervous at that point if I was the man. And paralysis might be the least of my problems by the time I got down. But anyway, he comes down and he lands in front of Jesus. 
just, just, just some side right. If you want to know what faith is, Jesus describes it as faith. He says, when he saw their faith, here's a definition of faith. Faith means not letting anything stop you getting to Jesus. You get to Jesus, whatever obstacles in the way. If there's a roof, if there's a crowd, it doesn't matter. You get to Jesus because you know that Jesus is the only one who can really help you. That's faith. Faith is doing whatever it takes to get to Jesus. That's what Jesus saw in these guys. He saw faith. They knew their only hope was in him. So anyway, Jesus is lying here. No, he's not. Jesus is standing here and the man's lying here. You can imagine the crowd, the people buzzed. Ooh! I mean, the sermon was alright, but this is good. <laughs> can we get some action? You can imagine the murmuring. He's going to hear just watch what Jesus does. Perhaps for some of them, they've not seen a miracle with their own eyes. They've heard about it, but I'm going to see it. I'm going to see it for myself. But Jesus doesn't please the crowd. He doesn't give them what they want. It's obvious what they want. They want a miracle. But instead, he says something that seems very strange, and then when you begin to think about it, it's absolutely outrageous. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. There would be an awkward silence after that, wouldn't there? As everyone stands and goes, what? What was that? Why does Jesus say that? He's healed loads of people already. Why does he choose that moment to say to this man, your sins are forgiven? What's he doing? I don't think it's because he can see that this man is paralysed because of his specific sin. I mean, his illness and sickness is in our world because of sin, but the Bible doesn't teach that he's sick because of his personal sin. That's not what the Bible teaches. No, what Jesus decides to do at that moment is he says, I'm going to confront the religious leaders. I'm going to show them what my kingdom is like. So he says, son, your sins are forgiven. So let's have a think about this, um, this thing about forgiveness. What, what, what does that mean? Right, three, three, three quick things about forgiveness, alright? Firstly, it's quite a shock that forgiveness is necessary when you, when you think about it. I mean, this man can't walk. <laughs> Come on, Jesus. Wrong problem. Bad diagnosis. It's the walking thing that's the issue here, Yeah? But Jesus can see that this man has a bigger problem. He has a problem which goes deeper than his paralysis, and it's a problem that the Bible calls sin. Now, sin is not just that... Oh, the trouble is, you see, our culture has taken this word sin. What does sin mean in our world today? It means something that's naughty but nice, right? So if you go to Weight Watchers, sins are the nice food that you're not really supposed to eat, but you're allowed a few of them. (laughs) But sin is something so much bigger than that. Sin is much more like a sickness, like like an illness in my heart that is causing, it's a terminal illness that is causing me to die. Sin is not so much about me... uh, breaking the rules and and kind of doing whatever I want. Sin is much more about me saying, no, I want to be in charge. 
I'll set the standard. I'll set the dress code. Thank you very much. I'll decide what I do with my life. And sin is a problem that all of us have. Now, sin is a problem because it's against God. And therefore, when I sin, I'm setting myself against God. That's the problem. That's why it's such a big deal. Now, just try, try and think with me for a second. I, I, I want to try now something here, because I think this is important. Um, in our culture, forgiveness, the concept... Does our culture talk about forgiveness? Yes? There's quite a lot of talk about forgiveness, yeah? But what our culture means by forgiveness is a very therapeutic thing. In other words, I feel a bit guilty. I need to try and find some forgiveness. It's a feeling-based thing. I feel guilty. I need something to make me feel better. You know, Phil comes and he says, oh, I just feel really rubbish. I say, Phil, you need to learn to forgive yourself, mate. You know, you need to have a bit more self-esteem. That's, that's the language our culture is very therapeutic. It's, this will heal you. This, this will help you to deal with that feeling of guilt. I want to show you that forgiveness is not a therapeutic thing. It is much more of a legal thing, an objective thing. Whether you feel it or not, the Bible says you're guilty. Uh, there's no indication here that this bloke was feeling guilty. He wasn't lying there going, oh, I feel so awful. I feel, he's just going, I can't walk. That's my problem. And yet the fact he doesn't feel it doesn't mean it's not true. But, okay, let me put it like this, right? This will, this will make it clear. So the patient who goes to see a doctor, all right? And the doctor says, I'm really sorry to tell you, you have a very serious terminal illness. And the patient says, but I feel fine. I feel okay. I don't believe you. I don't believe it's a problem. Look at me, I can do press-ups and I can dance and I can, I can do all this stuff. There's nothing wrong with me. I feel fine. The fact you feel fine is irrelevant if you're not really fine. Can you see that? The fact that you feel fine isn't going to make the doctor go, oh, right, then fine. The doctor is going to say to you, yes, but you have to believe me. There is a problem, a terminal illness in your heart that is killing you. And that is what Jesus is doing here. He's saying forgiveness, it's so much more than just how do you feel. It's whether I feel it or not, I am guilty before God. And forgiveness is something that I need. I need something or someone that will take away this sin thing that I have. Not just that it will make me feel better, but that will actually change where I am. There's a, there's a, a brilliant description of this in the Bible. Okay, Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, as far as the east, for you, for the east is from the west so far has God taken our sin from us that's forgiveness so I have this terminal illness which is killing me this sin which is causing me to be against God and under God's right anger I have this sin and the Bible says there is forgiveness 
that is possible. That can be taken away completely. Not worked on and cleaned up. Not kind of scrubbed out, but taken away. That's forgiveness. That there's a, okay, I'm trying to give you images of this. I want to plant this image of forgiveness in your head. Here's another one, right? Imagine I've got a little goat. Meh. Here, okay? This is an Old Testament image of what I'm talking about, of sin being taken away. A goat. And one day a year, the priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat, and the sin of the nation would be transferred to the goat, and the goat would then be driven out into the desert. Driven away. The scapegoat. And as, he go, as the goat goes, he carries the sin away. And as the further the goat goes away, the further the sin is. That's what forgiveness is. And that is what this man lying on the floor needs. That is what I need. That is what you need. Forgiveness. So it's a surprise that forgiveness is necessary. It's a surprise, though, that forgiveness is possible. Why doesn't God just squash us if we're that bad? Because he's made a way. But here's where it gets offensive. And this is what bugs... So far, the, so far, the Jewish leaders are, are okay. This is what annoys them. The shock is that Jesus can do it. So here's this bloke, right? You know, 30-year-old bloke. Grown up in Galilee. No one really knows who he is. And suddenly he rocks up and goes, Your sins are forgiven. Okay, we get, that, we get that sin is a problem and it needs to be forgiven. And we get that forgiveness is possible. We know that God forgives sin. But who the hell are you? Who do you think you are going around pronouncing forgiveness of sins? And the accusation, do you see the accusation? That's blasphemy. Verse 6, teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now their theology is right. (laughs) They are right. Only God can forgive sin. That's why they're so upset with Jesus. Because when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, who is he claiming to be? That is a claim to be God. The Bible makes it very clear that when I sin, I sin against God. Even if I punch Phil in the face, sorry Phil, you're sitting there. (laughs) If If I punch Phil in the face, who have I sinned against? Yes, in one sense, I've sinned against Phil. But Phil, remember, bears the image of God. He's created in the image of God. So as I punch Phil in the face, I'm punching God's image in the face. I have sinned against God. Psalm 51 says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Therefore, you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. You see? Here is, when I sin against Phil, actually I'm sinning against God. Therefore, who is the only one who can forgive me? Only God. This is obvious. If I punch Phil in the face, and Josh comes up to me and says, it's alright, John, I forgive you. Phil's like, whoa, hang on. What have you got to do with it? You see, that doesn't work. 
Only the person who's been sinned against can forgive sin. And that is what Jesus is claiming. So have a look at what he says. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit this is what they were thinking. And he said to them, why do you think these things? Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. Right, which is easier? Which is easier to say? I mean, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, isn't it? Because no one knows what's happened. If I say, get up and walk, you will know. (laughs) If nothing happens. But if I say your sins are forgiven, you don't know. So Jesus says, fine, look, I've claimed to forgive sin. Fine, I'll do the harder thing. I'll make him walk. But I'll only make him walk to demonstrate. Look at it. Look how strong this is. Do you, you feel this in verse 10? I want you to know, Jesus, that I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know that I do have authority. Son of Man, we'll come down in a second. Jesus talking about himself. I want you to know I have that authority. And so Jesus says to him, right, get up, pick up your man, and go home. Up the man gets, out he walks. You see, Jesus says, I I do have authority to forgive. So why does he call himself Son of Man? That's a weird little... I used to be in a a gang when I was a... When I was a... teenager. I mean, it's not like a gang. Not not like a proper gang. There's only two of us. It was... Come on. Don't be mean, all right? I'm sharing something quite deep with you. Uh, I used to be in a gang, and it was me and my mate, Stephen Gower, and uh, we, had, we had code names in our gang. And the code names kind of represented something about our characters. St- Stephen, my mate Stephen, uh, he was called Eagle Eyes. And please don't laugh, because right, this is quite big for me to share. Uh, my code name was Falcon Fighter, <laughs> which I quite liked. It made me feel good. And uh, those, those code names. Now, sorry, Son of Man, right, that was all irrelevant. Son of Man is a code name. That was all that was about. All of that illustration stuff, forget that. Code name, right? It was a code name which had a very significant meaning. You want to know how Jesus can forgive sin? It's because he's a son of man. Ooh, so what? Who cares if he's a son of man? What does that mean? I'll show you what it means. Here we go. This is Daniel chapter 7, all right? Have a look at this. Daniel chapter 7. This is what Jesus means. This is why Jesus has authority to forgive sin. Right, Daniel, 500 years before Jesus had a vision. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father on the throne, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nation peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus says, hello, that's me. You want to know why I've got the right to forgive sin? Because I am the Son of Man. I am the one that God promised. I'm the one who is with my Father. I'm the one who is welcomed by my Father and is given authority by my Father. If you're uh, you're in a courtroom, the person who you should be most concerned about is the judge. And the person who you most want to forgive you is the judge. If Jesus, right, is the one with all authority and he is the judge and he says to you, son, your sins are forgiven. Can't you see how beautiful that is? 
Can't you see the authority that comes with? Jesus says, that's me, that's my kingdom. And all these religious leaders saying, well, who do you think you are? Actually, what they don't want to admit is that they're not the ones who have authority. Jesus is. Jesus has all authority. Look at it. And the right response is to worship him. So in our culture, and perhaps for some of us, even now, Jesus is saying, I am the one who can forgive your sin. I am the one who will take your sin away. I am the one who has that authority. And we may say, I don't want to believe I'm a sinner. I'm not a sinner. Actually, Jesus says, yes, you are. And if you don't like it, if you don't want it, you say, I'm not interested. I I hate that. That's okay. He's not interested in building a crowd. He's not interested in impressing you. He wants to tell you the truth. What you choose to do with the truth is up to you. In the same way that you can walk out of a doctor's surgery and you can say to the doctor, stuff you. I'm not listening to you. I don't believe it. I feel fine. You can do that to Jesus. You can turn your back on him and say, stuff you. I don't believe you. You can do that. Because he didn't come to build a crowd. He came to build a kingdom. But as you walk away from him, you walk away from the only man who can actually forgive your sin. And he can set you free. His kingdom, Jesus uh, forgives sin. And the, the second big thing, and um, sorry, we'll, we'll, we'll do this one more quickly. Um, but that's that Jesus forgives sin and Jesus calls sinners. Look what happens next. Again, he goes out, there's a crowd. He begins to teach them. Then he walks along and look, he sees Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. <laughs> right, so he sees him. Now, tax collector, baddie, worked for the baddies. He was a Jew, but he kind of rejected his own baddie. He was a baddie, right? In every way, every single way, he was the worst of the worst, scum of the earth. Liar, deceiver, con man, filth, all the rest of it. Jesus goes to him and says, follow me. Does that, does that shock you? Because you haven't understood the story if it doesn't shock you. It is so offensive, like so offensive, that Jesus would call this man. And that's Jesus' confrontation. He says, okay, fine, here we go. These are the sort of people I've come for. And he puts it right out there, right in your face. This is what I'm about. And that leads to an accusation. Because Jesus not only calls Levi, who gets up and follows him, Jesus then goes to have dinner with him, and he's eating with him, and a pile of his other mates. Like all the scum, rubbishy, nasty people who Harrods would not let into their shop, and the Pharisees would not let into heaven, all of them, they were having dinner with Jesus. And the Pharisees have got a problem. They come with an accusation. Here it is. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now again, theologically, they're right. They are right. Psalm 1, right? says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Right? Blessed is the man who doesn't eat with sinners. Who doesn't join sinners. So they're kind of almost right, except they're completely wrong. Because Jesus hasn't come to join the sinners. He's come to rescue the sinners. That's the difference. 
He's not a compromiser. He says, these are the ones who need my help. These are the ones that I came to save. And that's his great demonstration. That's his great statement in verse 17. Look at it. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm not interested in people who think they're well. He hasn't got time for people who are going around saying, well, I'm alright, look at me, I'm fine, I'm healthy, I'm healthy. And imagine, imagine you went to visit the doctor and you went into his thing and he said to you, what's wrong with you? And you said, nothing. I've just come to tell you I'm really well. Look, I'll do some press-ups, the star jumps. I'm probably the fittest person you'll see all day. What would he say to you? Get out of here. Don't waste my time. Jesus says, if you go around thinking you're fine, thinking you're not sin, thinking it doesn't matter, he just says, I haven't come for you. I come for the people who know how sick they are, who know that they need help, who know that they need someone to rescue them. That's why Jesus came. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. Levi's rescued. Again, this challenges us, it offends us, it confronts us. We say, oh, I don't. This makes me feel uncomfortable because I like to think that good people get rewarded and bad people get squished. I don't like this. But here's the thing there are no good people. So that means all the people get squished. No, because Jesus comes to save them. Way. That's the point. And Jesus, I believe Jesus deliberately chooses Levi because he wants to say, if I can call Levi, I can call anyone. He does it again later with another man called Paul. And he calls Paul. And Paul, later on in 1 Timothy, he says, he says, God showed his unlimited patience to me when he called me, I'm the worst chief of sinners. And Paul basically says, if God can save me, he can save anyone. That's the point of Levi. There is not one person in this room who is too bad for Jesus to save. There may be people who are too good for Jesus to save. That's the shock. Because if we think we're good and if we think we don't need him, he can't help us. Because we need to admit our sin. So as we wrap this up, right, as we, as we wrap all this together, here's my question as we finish. Are you someone who is standing in the crowd or are you someone who's part of the kingdom? Standing in the crowd means you just want this Jesus to, you know, to make life a bit more interesting. He seems interesting, I'll have a bit of him. You're an admirer, you watch him, you think he's nice, you like his teaching, you want a bit of razzmatazz, you'd love to see some healings, but that doesn't seem to happen much here. Uh, perhaps go and find another church you know that kind of stuff you know we're looking for some more action we're looking for something a bit more interesting this is a bit dull let's find something else that kind of stuff right are you part of the crowd or are you part of the kingdom the kingdom those who say Jesus forgives sin and Jesus calls sinners I'm a sinner and he forgave me and he called me and I belong to him Are you part of the crowd or are you part of this kingdom? And as Globe Church, are we going to build a crowd or are we going to build a kingdom?
Can I say to you, I find it such a pressure to build a crowd. I just want lots of people to come. I want the Globe Church to get big. And because I get the glo- want the Globe Church to get big, therefore, it's so tempting to change the message. It's so tempting to give people what they want to hear. Don't talk so much about sin. Don't talk about the stuff that's offensive. Just say the nice stuff. The stuff that's nice. And just get to the pulled pork. Get to the pulled pork. That's what everyone's come for, really. Let's just do more food, less preaching. That's what it's all about. But we can't do that. Because we'd be walking a different road to Jesus. And do you know what happened to the crowd? When Jesus died on the cross, there was not one left. Not one. He died alone. So offensive was his message. But it was that death that brought forgiveness for us. So we want to be serious about Jesus. We don't want to faff around. We don't want to mess around standing on the outskirts like a crowd. We want to build his kingdom. So let's pray together. Let's thank him. I mean, this is a wonderful kingdom where Jesus forgives sins and Jesus calls sinners. Let's pray and thank him and then we're going to sing together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for our King Jesus. Thank you that Jesus didn't just come to entertain the crowds. Thank you that he came to build a kingdom. Lord Jesus, we worship you as the one who has all authority. You and you alone can forgive sin. You and you alone can call sinners. Father, forgive us for all those times when we are too good in our own eyes. When we are too righteous when we think that we've met the standard, when we think that we're great, when we are proud of ourselves. Father, help us instead to see Jesus as the one who calls sinners. Pray that we might recognize that we are sick and we need him. Jesus, we worship you. We thank you for your amazing grace.